Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Cal Wilson is the first Kiwi on the Laughaholics podcast and I couldn't be happier. She's got a great story to tell and the way she got into stand-up was not the way most of us trod that precarious path. It was great to catch up with Cal after so long. I do reveal a crush in this interview and I've realised I need to get back in contact with Cal to get someone's email address, of course, to be a future guest. I love my job. My name is Cal Wilson and I am a laughaholic. It was a highwayman sketch and so Benny Hill is escaping on a horse or something and he's being chased he pulls the reins and the horse's tail flips up and a gun comes out of its ass and it shoots out of the ass. And I thought that was the funniest thing I had ever seen. <laughs> Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter. Recording in progress. Cal Wilson, I'm very excited. I, I was thinking the last time we saw each other, I think it was at the Williamstown Literary Festival. Yes. Like five million years ago and we were there with, I'm trying to remember who we were there with because we were there and she was late and we were going to start. Can you remember who it was? Oh, I can't remember who that was, but you're right. You're right. And everyone was getting anxious. All the natives were getting anxious and it was full and we were sitting there and I said, I think we've just got to start. And whoever it was came running through the, <laughs> through the audience. Right. Oh, gee, that makes me feel terrible that I can't remember. I was hoping you would say, oh, it was... I feel like everything before last Wednesday is a blur these days. Me too. Me too. I the have to wipe everything from my memory. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's really interesting just to, here we are, you know, coming up to Christmas, although this episode won't, won't drop until um, New Year. Um, so happy New Year and Hanukkah and all of that. Um, but I, I just feel everyone is in this, we're still in this sort of really weird I don't know what day it is and, quite frankly, don't care. I keep saying that we had two games over the last year and this year and the two games were, uh, is it Sunday and is it March? (laughs) Both of those quests, like, just, yeah, like, just an endless kind of hazy fuzz of, it's it's weird. I've kind of, I've taken it as an opportunity to, to, I feel like I've wiped everything clean. So, like, if I didn't email someone back, pandemic got in the way if I didn't do something pandemic got in the way I sort of but I'd like to backdate it to about 2007. <laughs> so I have to ask you a very important pandemic question which only only those of us who have exceptional hair will know how did you cope with the hair in pandemic did I mean do you colour it yourself because I looked like a yak. <laughs> well I looked all right from the front but I was Gandalf at the back I was fortunate in that um, I had some pink dye and some purple shampoo and I eked those out. And then there was some brief moment where the the clouds parted. We could go to the hairdresser and I went to the hairdresser in the middle and then stopped up again and then went back into deepest pandemic. Yeah, I looked fine from the front, but from the back, terrible. Yeah, it was, I, I think, I think it's, it sounds so shallow, but it was the thing that affected so many of us the most because no, I mean, seriously, you can cope with all sorts of stuff, but not being able to get our hair cut, it wasn't so much the colour. It was I couldn't manage it. I didn't know how to yeah. deal with unmanageable hair. I mean, it was just, I mean, it's such a, a first world problem, but it was horrendous. 
Yeah, well, it's like you, like you think about how much, like if you have a bad haircut, how much that affects you and ruins your day. Months of it of just getting woollier and woollier. I know. And I was, I just, I had a guy moving to share my house and we spent 19 weeks locked up together a week after he moved in. Wow. Oh my God. I mean, luckily he has a full-time job, but... <laughs> 19 was I was I was watching football my friends on Facebook were saying who are you because yeah. don't do it I actually in fact I saw friends the other day and they said well we'll go to the footy together next year and I said will we and they said but you were you were into the football I said but I'm, I've recovered and they said no no, yeah. no. <laughs> so Cal I have to ask you as I ask every guest on Life Holics, um Cal are you a Caroline What's it, what's it short for? No, um, I, I don't even tell anyone. I just say it's Cal. Oh, it's a secret. Oh, but it's just, it's like my government name. Like, so I, I, I keep it for, if someone rings me up and uses my full name, I know it's either the doctor or the government. Oh, I get it. Because when I interviewed your, your comedy wife, Nellie Thomas, um, and discovered that she was a Janelle. Isn't that a shock? What a shock. Like she's perfect, perfect Nelly, and you don't think of her as a Janelle at all. But Tracy's not short for anything, is it? You're not you're not like re-Tracy or anything. You haven't got a long No, I'm just Tracy, but everybody calls me Trace. It's really interesting. 30 years ago, I did this metaphysics course, and I always used to call myself Trace. And then some numerologist came in and said, when you don't use the name that you you were given, then you change your karmic journey and I went right I'm Tracy but I kept trying out these names like Alexandra and Olympia <laughs> and my friend Bonnie would say you can't be one of those that's they're really scary you've got a soft fluffy name because you're big and scary so <laughs> <laughs> so Cal I, I you I, I've got to admit to a bit of anxiety before this interview um because you are my first international guest um, <laughs> And I, well, you are, you're a Kiwi. And I thought, what happens if Kel starts talking about things that she watched as a kid? And I've got no point of reference because apart from Shortland Street, I don't know anything about New Zealand television. Oh. And, but I am in love with, with Jermaine from um, oh, yes. Blood of the Concords. And I just wanted to ask you if you know him and is he single, straight and available? Um, I don't believe, I don't know if he's single actually, but yes, we did. We worked on a TV show together, Jermaine and Brett. So funny and so unassuming and so um, just so completely unchanged or unfazed by fame. We showed our son Flight of the Concords over the pandemic. We we're like, I think you, I think you're old enough to watch the Flight of the Concords, and he loved them as well. How old is um, he? He's twelve. Stop it! Goodness, that is a long time since yeah. we've seen each other. Yeah. Wow. And did he love it? He did. He really loved it. And then so I messaged Brett to say how much we were loving it again. On And also watching it a second time from now, so many years on, all of the people that were in it that are now massive yes. going, Crystal oh, Wing, oh, my God, oh, my God. Just uh, so many people. Yeah, and Diggy just loved it. And then Brett asked me how old Diggy was and said his daughter's 12. And I was like, oh, my Lord. Like I know. I remember doing theatre sports and Jeff Payne from Neighbours was there and he has twins. And I remember saying to him, because he said, how old's Max? And I can't remember. And I said, how old are the twins? And he said, they're 10. And I just looked at him, he said, other people's children don't age. And <laughs> we, people still stop me in the street from and say, how old's Max now from when I was doing radio? And I said, yeah. he's 27 and he's nearly 27. And they, they can't believe it. I mean, he's yeah. five and he's 27. But, yeah, it's really interesting looking back at stuff. I mean, I... 
I was given a link from my anaesthetist. I had a pain block last year in my neck and um, and he was a Kiwi and we were talking about Flight of the Concords and he said, have you ever seen the Red Nose Day thing where they sing Feels Inside? If you haven't shown Digby that and anyone listening, it's I showed my son, I think I watched it 20 times and just cried. It's yeah. so screamingly funny and there's this one bit where they say to one of the kids, oh, did you see the Muppet movie? What did you think of the song? And, and one of the kids said, oh, it's all right. And Jermaine says, I think it was a bit reductive. <laughs> and then just, you know, and that's my reference point when people, apart from you, Cal Wilson, but when people ask me about New Zealand comedy, I go straight to Flight of the Concords because that's how I was introduced to New Zealand comedy. Yeah. And there's, it's very dry. It's a very, um, where for me, Australian comedy, because I'm British-born Australian, Australian's very self-deprecating and in-your-face. Nothing wrong with that. We're all Australian comedians. But there's something very subtle about the New Zealand stuff and I can't put yeah. my finger on it. It's interesting because you say that Australians are self-deprecating, but Australians have more brashness than Kiwis do. There's a real humbleness, I think, to Concord-style humour. Yeah. It's really more low-key and kind of almost egoless in a way. Yes. But, yeah, I remember getting to Australia and just kind of being like, I don't quite understand what's happening and then hooking into the to the feel of it and, and getting it. But, yeah, it's a really different, yeah, there's just, there's just something even more bashful or something about Kiwi comedy, I think. Yeah, and I, I loved, I, I remember watching Jacinda because we all love Jacinda Ardern. Oh, my God. In fact, my son and I drove past the silo in, in Brunswick, I think, or Faulkner, where there's the painting of Jacinda Ardern on this giant silo. And I explained that to my my son and I just said, she's such she's such an extraordinary example of not just womanhood and woman leadership, but New Zealand has a history of strong, powerful women in leadership and opened up same-sex marriage long before it was even mm. on the table here and, and, and banned nuclear warheads from your waters. I mean, can you see I'm a New Zealand fangirl? I mean, <laughs> really, no, but I really love the fact, because my first radio co-host uh, was a man called Fred Bodica and he started on Radio Haraki. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, in, in um, Auckland. And I learned a lot about New Zealand culture and, and just how, you know, the Indigenous population had a treaty with yeah. the yeah, with the white people. Um, if, it's like, yeah, you can come and live here, bro, but if you don't agree to this, I'll eat you. You know, it was like... <laughs> not quite, but no, not quite. <laughs> but, you know, I'm saying that they were warriors in terms of they had a chance of, of standing up and fighting back and, and yeah. claiming leadership. I think there's, I mean, there's lots of differences between the two countries, but I think the thing with New Zealand is it's a small country and it's homogenous in mm. terms of there was one main language for the locals and it was a different life, a way of living than, than the Indigenous people here and it has been much more integrated and there's still racism problems and oh, things cool. need to be addressed in New Zealand, but it is just much more of a everyone's part of the same society kind of thing like I remember moving here and being shocked by people saying oh and, and, and do you know any Maori people and I was like well of course I do because Everybody. yeah it's um I, and I think when you've got a small population because I think it's like five and a half million I think it's easier to get things done as well yeah. and so, and it's, it's not as unwieldy like there's not separate yeah. states it's just one government for the whole country and I'm really I mean I'm really proud of it and I feel very strongly about you know the the anti-nuclear stance that we had like I remember that as a kid growing up the rainbow warrior being bombed yeah. you know like all of those things had a really formative 
impact on me. And I do, I am, like I love the way New Zealand respects the arts and, and that there's been help for the arts and an acknowledgement that, you know, when, when everything turns to shit and we've got nothing else to do except stay in our houses, what do we need? We need to laugh and we need to to watch creative things happen. Like, it, And I feel like here we don't get that acknowledgement. Nothing. No. nothing. I mean, just look at what happened to the art sector. And, I mean, I've got so many friends in America who kept talking about how much unemployment they were given during the lockdown. And most of my colleagues, including me, have not worked in two years and with no government support. It's just quite extraordinary when you, yeah. consider, when you consider how much the arts contributes and how much money it brings to the country. So as a young girl growing up in New Zealand, I mean, Christchurch, because one of my dear friends, I will mention her, Julia Holden, lives in Christchurch. She's an extraordinary artist, if you get the chance to look her up. And I, um, I, after the... Um, the terrible earthquake in, I think it was, oh, when was it, 2000 and, was it 2011? Uh, 2011, yeah. And yeah. one of my friends showed me the Christchurch Cathedral that was built out of cardboard, the cardboard tubing. And I, again, extraordinary. It's, yeah. they kept it, yeah, it's still there. Yeah, so it was only supposed to be temporary, I think, but it's still standing. It was a Japanese artist that did it. Yeah, um, I looked him up. His name is Shigeru Ban, and he's known as a disaster architect. And that's what he does. He goes in and fixes things. It's just yeah. incredible. Yeah, and they had a memorial um, that I think is there now. It moved around, but it was um, it was white-painted chairs, one for each person who died in the earthquake, and it was so moving to see all of these different sorts of chairs and then two baby carriers for for two babies who but it was just to have it it just was such a like such a visual representation of every single life like even talking about it now I've got goosebumps like it was just such a beautiful poignant tribute and I that was near the cathedral last time I think I went and saw it I try and get back as much as I can I haven't um obviously things are a bit different now getting back to Christchurch but yeah it's it's a very changed city to what it was I bet. So you grew up there. Yes. Little cow going to school. What were the things when you came home from school? Did what did you watch on TV? Were you one of those kids? Was that your generation where you would come home and race home to watch something, or did you have something that you watched as your family that was funny that you watched and you just thought, "Yeah, got to watch that." Well, yeah, we had things that we watched as a family, like um, things like Dad's Army. That was. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, so we watched Dad's Army all the time. We watched um, It Ain't Half Hot Mum, which, like, oh, yes. is, it just would not be made today. No. Um, two Ronnies. Oh, the uh, two Ronnies. Oh. Love the two Ronnies. Me too. Um, and Ron Corbett. I mean, I love them yeah. both. I mean, just they were just screamingly funny, weren't they, and so yeah. clever. And just that, like, I do, I have such a fondness for duos as well, you know, like the, the beautiful byplay between two people. I found the two Ronnies album the other day that, that I had, just, just stupid jokes that I remember just laughing at. Like, Ronnie Barker was playing Nana Mascori in a sketch. Yeah. So remember Nana Mascori, long, like a Greek singer, long, dark hair, and she had these thick glasses on. And when Ronnie Barker took the glasses off, her eyebrows were the shape of the glasses. <laughs> It was just such a funny idea to me. And they kind of, you know, they do that that very English thing of like skating near the line of being risque or, or yeah. whatever, not ever going overboard. But, and as a kid, so much that I must have missed. But I also remember my the first time I remember laughing at something on TV was at the Benny Hill show. 
Same. And it was it was a highwayman sketch. And so Benny Hill is escaping on a horse or something and he's being chased. He pulls the reins and the horse's tail flips up and a gun comes out of its ass and it shoots out of its ass. And I thought that was the funniest thing I had ever seen. But it's still funny. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But it's funny. And you know, I mean, Benny Hill's popped up on Laughaholics quite a bit because so many of us were brought up on it. But I think for me, I don't know if this happened to you, but watching my parents laugh, that was teaching me, like, I mean, watching them crying laughing yes. Benny yeah. Hill and, and the two Ronnies, like, just, like, absolutely convulsing. And I just, you know, that taught me, that was their sense. I mean, if you grow up, obviously we, we we take on the culture of our parents. It doesn't matter where we live. So my parents are Cockney and uh, I come from a long line of depressive Cockney alcoholics. So that was fun. <laughs> um, but, but Benny Hill and the two Ronnies, like, seriously, we would cry laughing, just yep. crying. I mean, and it was ridiculous, wasn't it? It was just yeah. gorgeous. Morkland Wise we used to watch as well. Yes, that yes. was another one. Um, and my dad loved Eric Sykes. So that kind of. Oh, the plank. The plank. The he plank. Got, we, I remember he got the plank on on video cassette or something, and I think we must have watched it a hundred times. Yeah, just but just that beautiful silent physical comedy of just <laughs> and Eric Sykes I loved as well. I, and what I found fascinating about him, so he had his big thick black rimmed glasses. His eyesight was fine, but he was deaf, and the glasses were like a conductive thing so that he could hear better. Oh, oh! I love him more now. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a, it was like a. I'm not sure how it worked, but I, I read that in a, an article about him saying that's that's what the glasses were actually for. Wow! And he did a lot of work with Hattie Jakes. Yes, yeah, she was oh, great. Oh, wasn't she? And and at the same the same era was Barbara Windsor. Yes, and, yeah. um, Who was the buxom blonde? But Hattie Jakes was. Oh, I just remember she was the first. If we're talking, you know, a body positive woman, I'd ever seen on television because all the women were all skinny and wearing bikinis, and yeah, yeah. there was never anyone bigger than a, a toothpick. And there was Hattie Jakes, this gorgeous, voluptuous woman, incredibly talent, talented, screamingly funny. Yeah, and I just, I just remember thinking, and then, and then again, there was the Dawn French era too where she she said no one ever told me I was fat my parents just told me I was beautiful and I was thought that yeah. I was I remember that I remember her saying that her dad always said how beautiful she was and that set her up for yeah, life that's right um, yeah the biggest uh comedy influence I reckon on me came about when I was at high school and one of my friend's older brothers lived in the UK and he sent back the comic relief cassette <laughs> so it had had French and Saunders. It was the first time I'd heard French and Saunders. Um, and Lenny Henry had um, had been out and doing a set, and it was the first time I'd heard stand up. Been out and set, and I was like, "Oh, you can do that!" Like it was. Yeah. Such, was we listened to that a million times that cassette? And was and that like, motor mouth? Was that? Did you hear his motor mouth cassette? Because I had that. Yes, we, yeah, we wore it out. We wore it out. I mean, you know, it got chewed up in the car. Yeah. We just couldn't. It was. It wasn't he phenomenal. It was. It really was. It was such a um, yeah. It was such a, a bolt out of the blue for me of going. Oh, you can just talk and make jokes. Like, doesn't have to be sketches. And then French and Saunders were amazing as well. They did the, the set they did on Comic Relief was something about contraception, and they were talking yeah, about the todger. Yeah, and the todger, and and things come bursting out of the end, and a million <laughs> just flapping and flapping, and yeah, just riveting. And then I think was was the Ron Atkinson on that with Kate Bush singing. Singing like a love song with Kate Bush and Howard Jones was they would do it like 
Probably. <laughs> yeah, it was just, and oh, and also not the nine o'clock news. That was another one. Yes, yes. Oh, how great was that? Pamela Stevenson and a New Zealand woman who, I mean, I think yeah. the first woman from New Zealand who was massive internationally. I mean, yeah. she was just, she was incredible. And now she's Dr. Pamela Stevenson and a yeah. sex therapist. Yeah. And, and an accomplished author. And that felt like a step up from the, like it was it was slightly naughtier than the, than the other shows that we'd watched with mum and dad. And that was one that we loved. And I think we had the double cassette as well of, of oh. that. Knew the sketches off my heart. There's one that Rowan Atkinson just yelling out the front door, why don't you just grow up? Why don't you grow up? And his wife's going, what's wrong, dear? And he goes, nothing, I'm just talking to the plants. <laughs> perfect, perfect and beautiful and, and, and a sketch that was the Pope doing stand-up comedy. And it was just just a, just the, the ideas. And they did a musical about like a, a terribly ill-conceived um, airline company or something called Skybus or something. I don't know. It was like some, but they did like a, a sort of a five minute musical, and I'd never heard that. Like it was just all revelatory to me that you could that you could do all those things that they were doing, and it was exciting. And then Blackadder, like that was another oh. one that a bit later on that we all just adored. Adored. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I've said this on Laughing before, but I do remember Baldrick being because he'd signed his name S. Baldrick and and someone said, what, what's the S stand for? And he said, sod off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was that era. It was just so yeah. good. So when you were watching all of that, when you were when you were looking at that and thinking, oh, you, you can do this, you don't have to do sketches, were you, young Cal, already, already thinking, I want to do this? Were you I'm- already performing? I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't really have an idea of how that might happen. I thought you just kind of went along to a theatre and got a job. Like I had no concept of what it was like, but I thought I would probably end up as a teacher because that's what my mum did kind of thing. But I loved performing and I, like I have an early memory of making my family watch me do a play, which was me behind the table with polystyrene cups on my hands with faces drawn on them and telling my older brother, what to say is his polystyrene cups like like oh I loved being on stage but I had no clear concept of it and it was actually another um another uh New Zealand group called the Front Lawn who were a duo who when I was I think 16 17 they started out we saw them I saw them at the um Theatre Royal in Christchurch and it just blew my mind of the like these two men just not following any kind of theatrical rules and and doing they were making breakfast but it just became like this repetitive action that got out of control and things were being thrown all over the stage and I just didn't know like I'd seen lots of plays and stuff but I just didn't know that you could do what you wanted yeah sort of thing and like and really simple um just silly things like and great songs they do great songs and these little sketches and stuff and then the I think the encore of their show was one of them came, well, they both came out in like AstroTurf jackets. And so they had these green AstroTurf jackets and their hands in their pockets. And then they pulled their hands out and their hands were white. They were wearing white gloves and they just roved all over their jackets bleating like they were tiny sheep. (laughs) Funny. Just so ridiculous. That's hilarious. Yeah. And just, I remember sitting there in the audience and, and again going, oh, you can do that. Like I just had no idea that you could just do what you wanted and that, and that, people would respond to it and you just had to have the have the gumption to share what you thought kind of thing or share what you loved yeah so tell me about your first gig 
because most of us can, I mean, I can absolutely, we always remember and then mostly terrible. What was yours like? Well, this is the weird thing. So I did improv for maybe five or six years before I ever did stand-up. And so I don't really... A champion, a champion improver, I read. Yes. Oh, yes. You know, and as much as that anyone organising a festival can declare it the world championship. <laughs> but but um, so I did improv for years before I did stand-up. And so I had this weird thing of, oh, well, you, only, you can only say things once. Because in improv, you've, it's got to be new every time and you want to make something new. And when you're doing improv together, the best improv is you're all, you're all building something together and it doesn't matter who gets the laugh as long as the scene is served. So yeah. as long as we'll make this thing together. And, you know, improv gets a terrible rap and bad improv is the worst thing you've ever seen, but good improv is oh, just... good improv. Oh, it's heaven. Blind, heaven. It? Yeah. Like genuinely magical. Yes. People just build something out of nothing and it's a moment that will never happen in time again and we were all there for it. It's beautiful. And so we had been doing it for five or six years, this show that still runs in Christchurch, Scared Scriptless, it still happens on a Friday night 30-something years after we started the company. What's it, what's it called? It's called Scared Scriptless. Scared, so, oh, that's clever, Scared yeah. Scriptless. Yeah. So um, the court theatre in Christchurch is the only professional theatre in Christchurch and there was a, a theatre sports competition that happened my last year of high school run by a local radio station. We won it. Canadian guy had come over and married a Kiwi friend of mine and he started the company and so we kind of learnt our trade on stage because there was nothing else. Christchurch hadn't seen anything like this and we just, the theatre gave us the space so we had free rehearsal space. They'd take a little cut of the, the takings on a Friday night and it would sell out and like we we learnt and trained the audience as we went as to what it was. And then we started doing corporate gigs for, for companies and things. And the director of our company said, oh, we need to do, we need to do, uh, to offer other things to our clients. So you, you and you go and try stand up. And that was it. And the first, the first week was okay. Like, I think I did, I think I did something about bumper stickers. The first week went okay. And then we did it the next week. Where was it, Cal? Where was it? It was at the Ducks Deluxe in Christchurch. It was at a bar in Christchurch near to the art centre where the court theatre was. So we we did the first week and, and the audience kind of knew us because most of us were from the improv company anyway. And then the second week, I thought you had to write a whole new other 10 minutes. I didn't know that, like, you know, I've been using some material for years now. It's like heritage listed. But at the time, I thought every time you do stand up, it has to be new and didn't know about honing material and things. And so the Next week I went out and I remembered everything except the punchlines. Oh, so, so I'd do the setup and then I would not remember where it was supposed to go. And so I'd just start something new. And the audience was very supportive. They were like, Oh yeah, we're going, okay, we're talking about this now. We're talking about oh no, we've moved on to something else. Okay, right. Just had no idea that that you work on the same thing over and over again, but didn't really do stand-up regularly until I moved to Auckland like several years later and even then only like maybe once a month or once every couple of weeks not like you know when you live somewhere like London you're gigging several times a night and you can do as many shows a week as you want yes. um, and I and I I know here is still you know in Melbourne it's still there's, there's gigs but to someone from the UK it's like well there's hardly any any gigs like it's all relative but I think yes. yeah it wasn't until I moved to Auckland that I sort of regularly started doing stand-up having done improv all the way along so you move from Christchurch to Auckland it, would that be a normal rite of passage for anyone in New Zealand considering the the size of New Zealand that if 
if a comic was living further outside, you'd move into Auckland and hone your skills there. And then was it a natural a natural progression to come to Melbourne? Was that what happened for you? Yeah, well, so I moved to Wellington for a start. And I love Wellington. Wellington. Yeah, love Wellington's it. great. So Wellington sort of had a lot of production houses and things. And I did a I did a comedy competition called A Bit More After 10. The first season was called A Bit After 10 because it was on after 10 o'clock at night. But I was overseas uh, backpacking at that point. And then the second season was called A Bit More After 10. And I did a five-minute spot of stand-up about babies, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And um, how they all look like Winston Churchill. What an original thought. Uh, you know, they all do. <laughs> Although my baby looked like Kerry Packer when he was born. Oh. <laughs> Terrifying. Terrifying. Yes. So I did this televised comedy competition and out of that I got offered a job writing on a sketch show. And so I did that for a couple of years and then moved from that job up to Auckland because there was more TV being made up there and more opportunities. And then I did that for, I think I was there for maybe seven, six or seven years and then did the comedy festival in Melbourne and decided I wanted to move to Melbourne, like leaving a bad relationship behind as well and also going, there's more work for me in, in Australia. And because I'd done the comedy festival here, I kind of had people to come to. Like I had friends, I felt like I had a soft landing. And then when I was over doing the comedy festival, I got asked to audition for Skid House. And so I auditioned for that, didn't hear for a while, made the decision to move. And I was sort of coming to Melbourne with either a full-time job or coming to Melbourne with a 10-minute spot at the local that Janet McLeod had given me. So by the time I'd made the decision was on my way, I'd got the job. So it was really, it was a really great thing to come to walk into work met a whole lot of people. It was kind of like coming to school halfway through the term, but you've played with the kids over the holidays, sort of festival year. So it was really, it was a really great introduction to Australia just to have this job. So I, you know, I could earn a living. And And where did you live? Where did you move to when you first came here? uh, I moved into a house in Port Melbourne, which was um, in a great spot, but just a ridiculous house. Like our cat got heat stroke in the house. Like it was so poorly insulated. Your Your cat got heat stroke. Cat got heat stroke uh, from inside the house on a hot day, and then uh, in the winter you could wear a hat to bed and still be cold. Like it was just a ridiculous old house that the landlords were just letting fall down. I drive past it every now and then and go, it must be terrible living there because they haven't knocked it down yet. Oh, it's still there, it's still there, still there. But it was really, you know, you could see the sunlight coming in through the walls and yeah, that sort of thing. Um, but it was a great spot, and it was close to friends, and it was on a tram line. I didn't have a car and. You know, like it was such a, um, it was gr- a great spot to land. And it makes me laugh now. We used to go out on Skid House, we'd, you know, film on location, and we went to a place called Deer Park once. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, a, it's almost another country. It's so far yeah. away. From it is. Now my son plays football for Deer Park. So <laughs> the city has got a lot smaller as the longer I've lived here. Well, I think I think the roads have. Uh, I mean, the traffic's appalling at the moment post lockdown. But I, because everyone's terrified of catching public transport. But um, but you know, our roads seem to be getting better. They seem to be more linked up. Although that's not without controversy. But I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've got a friend who built a house in Caltello, and I think, wh- where is that? You know, because there's all these new suburbs popping up, and it's it's near Deer Park. In my my butcher opened up a new souvlaki place in Campbellfield. I live in Nunawati. It took me an hour to get there on his first day, but you know, friends show up. Yeah. So, yeah. so how was it for you though, leaving leaving New Zealand and leaving your family? Was that a wrench? I mean, I know it's still easy. To, well, 
COVID notwithstanding. Yeah. Was, it, was it a difficult decision to make? I mean, how old were you when you decided to do that, to come and live well, in another country? Well, I left Christchurch when I, I went overseas for a year and a half and did the backpacking thing. Okay. And then came back to Christchurch for a year or two, and then moved to Wellington. So I think I must have been 25 or something okay. by the time I moved to Wellington, then moved to Auckland two years after that. And then I was 30. One, I think maybe when I moved over here and it, because I'd lived away from Christchurch for so long, that didn't feel that different. And I always made sure I went back as much as I could. So I had a relationship with my nephews and nieces and saw mum and dad. And then moving here, like I thought about moving to the UK at one point, but it was just that thing of like, I want to be able to jump on a plane and get back to my family. Yeah. And obviously that's been a really weird thing over the pandemic of suddenly, like I might as well live in the UK because yeah, get back. And my mum was ill at the beginning of this year. And so, and I did actually manage to get home and see her, but it was such a, it was like the amazing race trying to get there. Like, so you have to book a spot in quarantine um, and you can only buy a ticket once you've got your spot. And then the only ticket that I could get for my spot was from Brisbane. And then you couldn't go to Brisbane from Melbourne because Melbourne was a hot spot. So like. It was awful. Awful. Terrible. You know, and I got there and she's, she's good now, but it was such a, yeah, the thing that I've taken for granted is I can just go back and see my family. Like I'll always be in a position to do that. And now, you know, like my son was holding out hope that we would get Christmas in Christchurch this year, which we're not going to. But yeah, it's such a it's such a different adjustment. Like when you live somewhere else, there's always a bit of your heart that's not where you are. Of course. Who would have thought? I mean, two years ago when there was no such thing as a pandemic and we never thought there ever would be, although interestingly, because I'm a bit witchy, I remember saying to someone, I remember saying the most important thing is gut health because the things that are going to get us are viruses. And I just remember that came out of nowhere. I mean, call me Nostradamus, but I remember thinking that's the stuff that's going to be a problem. And it's a big problem. And, you know, I... I never thought that we would ever be stopped from doing the things we love, which is performing, the things that help us to earn yep. a living, getting our hair cut, visiting friends. The, the, the lockdown when we were in the 2K limit, that was that was really, really, really yeah. not. I didn't see my son for three months and he only lives in Kensington. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah, really horrible. And, you know, and friends who've had relatives with mental health problems and not not feeling able to just to be there for them because they're outside the limit but you know you could do compassionate grounds and things like that but just yeah really it was it, it felt to me like the world shattered back into islands yes it did like you know even now I go oh gosh I wonder if I'll work in the UK again you know in a way that and on the other side of things though there were little lovely things where I did gigs I did zoom gigs in the UK at like five in the morning because <laughs> you know, friends are running a, um, a new material night. And so I hop in the study at 5am and try out some gags and see if they worked and like, you know. How stuff. was that? How was that? It was really great. And and because they had this, they had this show that had been running for long enough that they really trusted the audience and the audience could have their, their mics on because we've got into this situation now where you, you know, I've done loads of corporate gigs over Zoom where you can see people maybe if they haven't got their cameras off, but you never hear them because you don't want it to be interrupted by, oh, Russell, can you bring me another sandwich? You know, you don't want to have that, <laughs> yes. that kind of thing happening. So to do a gig where you could trust the audience to be laughter it was so great. And it was such a, um, had such a, what an old-fashioned expression I'm going to use. It was such a tonic in yes. the midst of lockdown to go, here I am doing this funny little magical 
thing in another country. It's going to take years, I think, for us to recover from yeah. in terms of the mental health stuff. Absolutely. I, I went to see my first show as an audience member uh, on Sunday. It was Michelle Brazier's show, Average Bear, which is a brilliant show. She's a really great comedian, fantastic singer. And where was it? Which venue? Comedy Republic. Comedy Republic, yeah. It's the new new venue in town on Burke Street. And, and I think it opened the day, it opened the week that the first lockdown started. So oh. they've done so well to survive and generate stuff through the lockdowns. So it was really beautiful to be there as an audience for the first time. And it was amazing because I've done gigs on stage now. I've done five or six gigs back, which has been amazing and oh, it's so exciting and exhilarating to feel the people there and see them. Yes. And you know, yes. But sitting in the audience being surrounded by laughter was really amazing. And then I found myself, the, the show that Michelle does has got, it's got some really like deeply poignant moments in it. And so I cried everything anyway. And I just found myself normally like I'd have one or two tears and I just sat there and I just had, they just rolled down my face for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, I'm, I'm fine and I'm enjoying and I'm laughing and everything, but I just am weeping. Like there was such yeah. a, yeah, just that release of all this emotion and being, and being in a room with other people feeling the same feelings yeah it's pretty profound can you give your michelle a plug because what's her name um her name's michelle brazier um she's half of double denim who are a great duo her show average bear i think has been performed for the last time but if you go to the comedy festival she'll have a new show and she's just a joy i will check her out so um i have to ask you about the fact that not only have you been a comedian for a long time but you're now a bona fide author and um i'm not only appearing in nelly thomas's books because i bought some of her books for christmas presents and so i went oh my god there's cal but uh, <laughs> george and the great bum stampede and george and the great brand swappery clever clever names um when did that happen what was the decision there well what happened was I always told my son bedtime stories and I worked out that if I kept the same cast of characters, that was something I didn't have to make up each time. <laughs> so I could do, so there's a family called the Peppertons and Professor Pepperton is an inventor. And so just stuff would happen to the Peppertons every night. And it always, they always started off the same way with the roll call of the Peppertons. And then there's all of the Peppertons. There's Professor Pepper Pepperton, Phil Pop Popper Pepperton, Pilates Pepperton, Pumpernickel Pepperton, Pilates. Then uh, Poco Pepperton and George, who's the youngest, but he's not the smallest. That's Poco. And he didn't um, get a P name. He just got George. The afterthought at the end. So there was like the little gag of going through the whole family and then George doesn't have a P name. Um, and so George is the narrator and it's, it's something you like. Professor Pippa Pepperton invents a replicating machine. So you can copy anything you like with this replicating gun uh, and the kids take it to school and they accidentally replicate the caretaker's bum and then uh, a very annoying, annoying girl called Madison Addison, uh, they they replicate her hands. And so there's like a massive bum stampede and the, the bums are being pinched by the hands and everything gets out of control. Oh, it's and, gorgeous. And does, yeah. and does that mean that Digby is, Digby is a celebrity of sorts because mum has written these fabulous books? Well, he's got the dedication in the first one and so he felt that he should sign them as well because he's in oh. the book. Of course. Um, so yeah, so that they that happened about three years ago now, I think. And it was really lovely. Like I, I loved books so much as a child. Like I got so much out of reading. And it was really exciting to kind of contribute to hopefully someone else loving books. And the biggest compliment is um occasionally I'll get a photo sent to me and it's someone who's dressed up as a character from one of my books for Book Week. Oh so like, gorgeous. Someone is 
stuff is George Pepperton or Professor Pepper Pepperton, and it's such a lovely. It's just it's such a thrill. Oh yeah, yeah. And and um, I've done a few workshops. I was doing a few workshops actually before lockdown happened, of um, doing kind of creativity things with kids which I really what I really loved was basically using improv games that we used on stage but my thing that I say is a brain two brains is not a brain plus a brain it's a brain times a brain and so getting kids to make up stuff together they're just so excited by what they've come up with together they never would have come up with alone and it's yeah it's been so such a joy and I do a little improv game thing but I've I've um adapted it so I've I've written a, a little short story with gaps in it and I get them to fill the words in and then I read out the story that we've written together and it's always preposterous but it's such a joy to to kind of feel like um spreading that seed of excitement about what you can make with your own mind gorgeous and I've got to say because I follow you on um Instagram I'm incredibly overwhelmed with your extraordinary creativity and all the garlands that you've made I think oh. I can I have one? And your head pieces and, I yep. mean, just really clever, Cal. I think it's fantastic. It's, it's oh. just, And I think that's the thing I too I, I've loved most about um, lockdown is being able to get to know uh, our own better by following people on Instagram. Where be, Because before we've had the time, it's like, oh, I wonder what Cal's doing. I wonder what Nelly's yeah. doing. I mean, you know, Nellie's daughter got paid some money for doing a design for her Christmas card today. My heart just exploded. Oh, yes. yes. So gorgeous. So are you doing the comedy festival for 2022? Yes, I am. Um, so the show's called I've Gone to a Lot of Trouble and it will uh, be featuring one of my headdresses on the poster because it does really feel like that's uh, what I'm doing at the moment. Um, <laughs> the, the one thing I've noticed about the pandemic is like I've done a bit of corporate work, which has been, thank goodness, but briefing calls instead of being over the phone or in person are now on Zoom. And I feel like we've moved into this space where now we understand how important it is to look at each other. Yes. And so now whenever I do briefing calls or whatever, it's a Zoom call and we it's there's just so much more... How much drier would this have been if we were just on a phone talking? Well, but, yeah, yeah. And you get to know them beforehand. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I did a briefing call a couple of weeks ago with one of my clients, but it was on the phone. And But when I turned up, I mean, she was, you know, we'd, we'd spent, I, I mean, normally a briefing call takes me half an hour, but I mean, this is like an hour longer. But we were talking about everything and, and nothing. Yeah. And it's really interesting how Zoom has opened up so many facets of our lives. I think mm. it's extraordinary i mean this podcast wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for zoom because yeah. who's going to be driving around meeting me in a studio like no one's got the time for that anymore and we don't need to do that anymore yeah so it's just nice to know that even though you look amazing from the top down that you're probably sitting there in your pajama pants underneath and so am i you know so. yeah. <laughs> yeah and it has opened up that feeling of connection and, it really and, has it sort of brought back the humanity, I think, too. Like always, like when I've done briefing calls for a, a corporate event, it's always been very formal and, and we stick to what we're talking about. And then once the pandemic started, everyone's like, how are you going? Are you going okay? That's right. Like real hu that, like the humanity kind of thing yeah. has come to it. And then, uh, sorry, I've just got to go and sort my daughter out. Like there's like it, suddenly this acknowledgement, I think, from companies and businesses that people have real rounded lives and that yes. we're all going to do the best and we need to look out for each other. Like, I, I mean, I hope it stays as we go further back into the new normal. Whatever that is. But, I mean, I've said, I've said a million times, Cal, you know, I think COVID was a gift 
for so many reasons in terms of, I mean, when, you know, when we first all went into lockdown and we were watching Italians singing on their balconies and serenading each other and dolphins going back into the water in Venice and, you know, and now, you know, things still have gone crazy again. But I think what's happened is that, yeah, we have got in touch with our humanity. We have got in touch with finding out how our neighbours are and, you know, mm. You know, people were dropping around food to me. I got bronchitis last year and, you know, I'm on a community group on Facebook and someone would say, I'm, I'm dropping you around some chicken broth. And I thought, thank you. I mean, just things that would never have happened, yeah. you know, before the pandemic. I just think I think we're really lucky. And I feel really lucky to have spoken to you today, Cal. Thank you oh, so much thank for you. sharing your time with me. I know that you're super busy and um, and we'll come and see. I've gone to a lot of trouble for the Melbourne International. Right. So what's your venue? Where are you going to be? Um, I'm going to be at the Vic Hotel in the um, in the banquet room. Oh, that's, that's gorgeous there. A lovely, lovely. Very nice. Very nice. So, Cal Wilson, I'm going to give you a big kiss. Mm-hmm. And um, from one laughaholic to another, very grateful for your time and thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, what a pleasure. I will go about the rest of the day feeling well fed. <laughs> me too. As we all know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they are certainly not free to create. The following extraordinary people have contributed their amazing talents to create Laughaholics, and I wholeheartedly recommend their businesses. Laughaholics audio production, editing and imaging, brilliantly executed by Daryl Misson. The Laughaholics logo was created by Rick Plumridge at Ricochet Graphics. The Laughaholics show theme was lovingly composed by Steve the Bastard, and for more information on the Laughaholics experience as a professional development tool, please go to tracybartram.com.au where you'll see my new website. Thank you so much to NME Digital for their amazing work. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter. <laughs> <laughs>